You're listening to A People's Anthology. Produced by Boston Review, this is a new podcast that highlights and explores radical texts from US history, with our first six episodes surfacing a few important documents related to the urban rebellions of the 1960s and 70s. This is episode four on Fred Hampton's 1969 speech, Power Anywhere There's People, introduced by Assad Haider and read by Malcolm London. I might be in jail, I might be anywhere, but when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. You're going to have to say that I am a proletarian. I am the people. I'm not the pig. You've got to make a distinction. And the people are going to have to attack the pigs. The people are going to have to stand up against the pigs. That's what the pastors are doing. That's what the pastors are doing all over the world. Fred Hampton was born in 1948. From an early age, he showed himself to be a talented organizer, brokering peace among street gangs in his hometown of Chicago. He strove to build a class-conscious, multiracial movement, which he called the Rainbow Coalition. It was a broad alliance of anti-imperialist groups, including the Puerto Rican Young Lords. The Young Lords organization who are trying to speak out, you know, we're a poor organization who works for poor people, and we're trying to speak out and let the world know what poor people want. Of course, this work was a threat to imperialists and capitalists, who achieved their power by pitting oppressed nations against each other. Recognizing Hampton as a major threat, the FBI and Chicago police constantly surveilled him. In his speech, Power Anywhere There's People, Hampton describes how Huey Newton founded the Black Panthers and the work that they were doing to engage the masses. At the point Hampton was writing, the Black Panther Party had only been around for three years, but had spread to every major American city and were keen to separate themselves from other groups. The Black Panther Party is coming out of this idea of black nationalism. Black nationalism, or the project of self-determination for black people. The idea that there has to be autonomy for black people in the U.S. and that this corresponds in a significant way with the demand for national self-determination by oppressed minorities all over the world. And they really took that to its conclusion. The Panthers went further with internationalism, the idea that oppressed nations should band together against the common enemy of the United States. You see this in the writings of Huey Newton when he writes a letter, for example, to the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam offering Black Panthers as troops. He makes it clear that for him... Nationalism is a fundamentally flawed project, and the Black Panther Party can no longer sustain the idea of nationalism because they exist within the primary imperialist nation, and that demands for national self-determination around the world have legitimacy insofar as they oppose imperialism, but that the category of the nation can't be the endpoint of politics, that ultimately Nations have to be overcome, and the state itself has to be overcome, as he says explicitly in this letter. Coming out of this historical moment, Hampton is keen to emphasize that capitalism can't be fought with black capitalism. It has to be fought with socialism, or, as he says in all caps, international proletarian revolution. 
overall, it's an extraordinary example of Fred Hampton talking as an organizer and also as a kind of political theorist talking about organization. And so first, I think he places this emphasis on knowledge coming from practice. It doesn't come from intellectuals, it doesn't come from books, but through practice. And intellectuals and ordinary people all participate in this. And so that's the basis of knowledge. And it's not like we might think now from magazines or websites or whatever. It doesn't come from outside in that way. It comes from practice. But this isn't automatic. And so this is the second thing that I think is important, his emphasis on political education. And political education is not imparting consciousness to people or just imparting ideas to people. It's also a kind of practice. It's a practice that people engage in when they engage in collective study, uh, when they reflect on the actions they've taken. And for Fred Hampton, what's important about political education is that it allows people to understand that there are contradictions within their communities, there are political contradictions, and that as the Black Panther Party is confronting racism, they also have to confront the class divisions within their own community, and that liberation isn't when an elite of a particular group achieves dominance. Liberation is when those contradictions are also overcome. And just as much, it's a matter of combating racism by forming a cross-racial solidarity. And this is exactly what Fred Hampton was trying to organize in Chicago with the Rainbow Coalition, which was a set of alliances with the Young Lords, with the Young Patriots, and so on. Hampton describes how the Panthers' free breakfast program acted as an important educational tool. And this practice of political education is also the way that a group of people is organized into a collective group that can engage in politics. And so Hampton talks about the Breakfast for Children program, not only as a form of self-help or of mutual aid, but also the way that socialist ideas are imparted to members of the community and how a kind of socialist collectivity is built. When people participate in the Free Breakfast for Children program, they learn the idea that it is possible to organize themselves in an egalitarian way, in a way that's based on mutual aid, and that there is something that can go beyond the capitalist society in which they live. And so I think these are really extraordinary ideas to help us understand what the Black Panther Party was doing, but also ideas that remain totally relevant today. Self-help programs were also important tools for recruitment. There is today some suspicion from the socialist left about self-help programs, as though that somehow... Um, uh, that that's somehow incompatible with making demands of the state for uh, social programs, for welfare uh, programs, and so on. Um, but this is a really uh, misleading understanding of the history. If you go back to the late 19th century, you'll see that the, the first socialist party, the, the German Social Democratic Party, had a wide range of self-help programs. They had there were bicycle clubs, uh, food buying co-ops, and so on. Actually. The recruitment of the Social Democratic Party drew in large part from these uh, self-help mutual aid programs, in some cases more than through the unions. And so these have always been an important part of building a kind of socialist subculture, a kind of, um, a kind of world in which it's useful for people to be part of a political organization, not just a chore. Okay, I mean, you know, uh, endless meetings and uh, 
uh, drawn out debates are not um, are, are not attractive to people who uh, are coming out of a day's work, but a bicycle club might be. And uh, if you need to feed your children and there's a free breakfast program, that might be something that you want to participate in. So the the key thing is not that it's um, charity. The key thing is that you're actually reaching people. And um, I think rather than think in abstract terms about policy, you have to think in terms of how do you actually build connections with people and how do you reach um, a, a broader population than the people who are already in your organization. Hampton's success as a young revolutionary leader made him a top FBI target. On December 4th, 1969, a little before five in the morning, a squad of heavily armed police raided an apartment where Hampton and other Panthers lived. Here's some archive testimony of that day from Hampton's girlfriend, Deborah Johnson. She was pregnant at the time of the shooting. Someone came into the room, started shaking the chair. The chairman, chairman, wake up, pigs was laughing. And I saw bullets coming from what looked like the front of the apartment, from the kitchen area. They were pigs just shoot. Never said a word, never got about the bed. Uh, person who was in the room, they kept calling out, stop shooting, stop shooting. We have a pregnant woman or a pregnant sister in here. At the time, I was eight and a half, nine months pregnant. My baby was delivered in two weeks. Pigs kept on shooting. Finally, they stopped. They pushed uh, me and the other brother by the uh, kitchen door and told us to face the wall. Heard a pig say, He's barely alive, he'll barely make it. I assume they were talking about Chairman Fred. Pig, they started shooting, up, shooting again. I heard the sister scream. They stopped shooting. Pig said, he's good and dead now. According to one account, police fired 200 rounds into the apartment, killing the 21-year-old Hampton as he lay in his bed and another Black Panther, Mark Clark. Years later, it was discovered that FBI had an informer among the Panthers, who had given the police a floor plan of the apartment, including a sketch of where Fred Hampton slept. Fred Hampton was murdered by the state at a very young age. And I think when you look at what he says in this speech, and when you look at the kinds of coalitions he was trying to build, you can see why he was so dangerous. Power anywhere there's people. Power anywhere there's people. Let me give you an example of teaching people. Basically, the way they learn is observation and participation. You know, a lot of us go around and joke ourselves and believe that the masses have PhDs, but that's not true. And even if they did, it wouldn't make any difference because with some things, you have to learn by seeing it or either participating in it. And you know yourselves that there are people walking around your community today that have all types of degrees that should be at this meeting but are not here, right? Because you can have as many degrees as a thermometer, but if you don't have any practice, they can't walk across the street and chew gum at the same time. 
Let me tell you how Huey P. Newton, the leader, the organizer, the founder, the main man of the Black Panther Party, went about it. See, the community had a problem out there in California. There was an intersection, a four-way intersection, and a lot of people were getting killed, cars running them over. And so the people went down and redressed their grievances to the governor. You've done it before. I know you people in the community have. And they came back and the pigs say, no, you can't have any. Or they usually don't say that you can't have it. They've gotten a little hipper than that now. That's what those degrees on the thermometer will get you. They will tell you, okay, we'll deal with it. Why don't you come back to the next meeting and waste some time? And then they got you wound up in this excursion of futility. And you got to be in a cycle of insaneness. And you be going back and going back and going back and going back so many times that you're already crazy. So they tell you, they say, okay, niggers, what you want? And then you jump up and say, well, it's been so long, we don't know what we want. And then you walk out of the meeting and you're gone. And they say, well, you niggas had your chance, didn't you? Let me tell you what Huey P. Newton did. Huey Newton went and got Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party on a national level. Bobby Seale got his nine millimeter. That's a pistol. And Huey P. Newton got his shotgun, got some stop signs, got a hammer, went down to that intersection, gave his shotgun to Bobby, and Bobby had his 9mm, and he said, you hold this shotgun. Anybody that mess with us, blow their brains out. And he put those stop signs up. There were no more accidents, no more problems. Now, they had another situation that's not that good, you see, because it's two people dealing with a problem. Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. And no matter how bad they may be, cannot deal with the problem. But let me explain to you who the real heroes are. Next time, there was a similar situation. Another four-way corner. Huey went and got Bobby, went and got his 9mm, got his shotgun, got his hammer, got more stop signs. Placed those stop signs up. Gave the shotgun to Bobby. Told Bobby, if anybody mess with us while we putting up these stop signs protect the people, and blow their brains out. What did the people do? They observed it again. They participated in it. Next time, they had another four-way intersection, problems there. They had accidents and death. This time, the people in the community went and got their shotguns, got their hammers, got their stop signs. Now, let me show you how we're going to try to do it in the Black Panther Party here. We just got back from the South Side. We went out there. We went out there and we got to arguing with the pigs. Well, the pigs got to arguing. And he say, well, Jeremy Fred, you supposed to be so bad. Why don't you go there and shoot some of those policemen? You always talking about you got guns and got this. Why don't you go shoot some of them? And I said, you've just broken a rule. As a matter of fact, even though you have on a uniform, it doesn't make any difference. Because I don't care if you got on nine uniforms and a hundred badges. When you step outside the realm of legality into the realm of illegality, then I feel you should be arrested. And I told him, you being what they call the law of entrapment. You tried to make me do something that was wrong. You encouraged me. You tried to incite me to shoot a pig. And that ain't cool, brother. You know the law, don't you? I told that pig, I told him, you got a gun, pig? I told him. You got to get your hands up against the wall. We're going to do what they call a citizen's arrest. And this fool don't know what that is. 
I said, now you just be calm as you can. Don't make too many quick movements because we don't want to have to hit you. And I told him like he always told us. I told him, well, I'm here to protect you. Don't worry about a thing. I'm here for your benefit. So I sent another brother to call the pigs. You got to do that in a citizen's arrest. He called the pigs. Here come the pigs with carbines and shotguns walking out there. They came out there talking about how they're going to arrest Chairman Fred. And I said, no, fool. This the man you got to arrest. He's the one that broke the law. And what did they do? They bugged their eyes. They couldn't stand it. You know what they did? They were so mad. They were so angry. They told me to leave. And what happened? All those people were out there on 63rd Street. And what did they do? They were around there laughing and talking with me while I was making the arrest. And they looked at me while I was rapping and heard me while I was rapping. So the next time the pigs come on 63rd Street because of the thing that our Minister of Defense calls observation and participation, that pig might be arrested by anybody. So what did we do? We were out there educating the people. How do we educate them? Basically the way people learn, by observation and participation. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what we got to do here in this community. And a lot of people don't understand that there's three basic things that you got to do anytime you intend to have yourself a successful revolution. A lot of people got the word revolution mixed up. And they think revolution is a bad word, but revolution is nothing but like having a sore on your body. And then you put something on that sore to cure the infection. And I'm telling you that we're living in an infectious society right now. I'm telling you that we're living in a sick society. And anybody that endorses integrating into this sick society before they cleaned up, man, that's who's committing a crime against the people. If you walk past a hospital room and see a sign that says contaminated, and then you try to lead people into that room, well, either those people are mighty dumb, you understand me? Because if they weren't, then they tell you you are an unjust, unfair leader that doesn't have your followers' interests in mind. And what you're saying is simply that leaders have got to become. We've got to start making them accountable for what they do. They going around talking about so-and-so's an Uncle Tom. And so we're going to open up a cultural center and teach them what blackness is. And this nigga is more aware than you and me and Malcolm and Martin Luther King and everybody else put together. That's right. They're the ones that are most aware. They're most aware because they're the ones that are going to open up the center. They're going to tell you where the bones come from in Africa that you can't even pronounce the names. That's right. They'll be telling you about Shaka, the leader of the Bantu Freedom Fighters, or Jomo Kenyatta, and the Dingo Dangas. They'll be running all of that down to you, and they know all about it. But the point is, they do what they're doing because it's beneficial and it's profitable for them. You see, people involved in a lot of things that's profitable for them, and we got to make it less profitable. We got to make it less beneficial. I'm saying that any program that's brought into our community should be analyzed by the people of that community. It should be analyzed to see if it meets the needs relevant to that community. We don't need no niggas coming into our community having no company to open a business for niggas. There are too many niggas in our community that can't get crackers out the business they're going to open. We got to face some facts. The masses are poor. That the masses belong to what you call a lower class. And when I talk about the masses, I'm talking about the white masses. I'm talking about the black masses and the brown masses and the yellow masses, too. We got to face the fact that some people say you fight fire best with fire. But we say you put fire out best with water. We say you don't fight no racism with racism. We're going to fight racism with solidarity. We say you don't fight no capitalism with no black capitalism. 
you fight capitalism with socialism. We ain't gonna fight no reactionary pigs who run up and down the street being reactionary. We're gonna organize and dedicate ourselves to revolutionary political power and teach ourselves the specific needs of resisting the power structure. Arm ourselves and we're gonna fight reactionary pigs with international proletariat revolution. That's what it has to be. The people have to have the power. It belongs to the people. We have to understand very clearly that there's a man in our community called a capitalist. Sometimes he's black and sometimes he's white. But that man has to be driven out of our community. Because anybody who comes into the community to make a profit off the people by exploiting them can be defined as a capitalist. And we don't care, we don't care about how many programs they have or how long of a dashiki they have. Because political power does not flow from the sleeve of a dashiki. Political power flows from the barrel of a gun. It flows from the barrel of a gun. And a lot of us running around talking about politics don't even know what politics is. Did you ever see something and pull it and you take it as far as you can and it almost outstretches itself and it goes into something else? If you take it so far that it's two things. As a matter of fact, some things, if you can stretch it so far, it'll be another thing. Did you ever cook something so long that it turns into something else? Ain't that right? That's what we're talking about here with politics. That politics ain't nothing. But if you stretch it so long that it can't go no further, then you know what you got on your hands. You got an antagonistic contradiction. And when you take that contradiction to the highest level and stretch it as far as you can stretch it, you got what you call war. And politics is war without bloodshed. And war is politics with bloodshed. If you don't understand that, you can be a Democrat, Republican. You can be an independent. You can be anything you want to. You ain't nothing. We don't want any of those niggas, any of those hunkies, and anybody else, radicals or nobody talking about, I'm on the independent ticket. That means you sell out the Republicans. Independent means you've gone for graft and you'll sell out to the highest bidder. You understand you understand, we want people who want to run the People's Party because the people are going to run it whether they like it or not. The people have proved that they can run it. They run it in China. They're going to run it right here. They can call it what they want. They can talk about it. They can call it communism and think that's going to scare somebody, but it ain't going to scare nobody. We had the same thing happen out there on 37 Road. They came out to 37 Road, where our Breakfast for Children program is, and start getting those women who were kind of older, around 58. That's because, you know, I call it older because I'm young. I ain't 20, right? Right? <laughs> but you see, you see, they're going to get them and brainwash them. And you ain't seen nothing till you seen one of them beautiful sisters with their, with their hair starting to get gray, and they ain't got that many teeth. And they were tearing them policemen up. They were tearing them up. And the pigs would come up to them and say, uh, you like communism? And the pigs would come up to them and say, you scared of communism? And the sisters would say, no scared of it. I ain't never heard of it. You like socialism? No, scared of it. I ain't never heard of it. And the pigs, they be cracking up because they, they enjoy seeing these people frightened of their words. You like capitalism? Yeah. Well, that's what I live with. I like it. You like the Breakfast for Children program, nigga? Yeah, I like it. 
And the pigs say, oh, oh, the pigs say, well, the Breakfast for Children program is a socialistic program. It's a communistic program. And the women say, well, I tell you what, boy. I've been knowing you since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, nigga. And I don't know if I like communism. And I don't know if I like socialism. But I know that the Breakfast for Children program feeds my kids. And if you put your hands on a Breakfast for Children program, I'm going to come off this can and I'm going to beat your ass like... <laughs> that's what they be saying. That's what they be saying. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's what the Breakfast for Children program is. A lot of people think it's charity. But what does it do? It takes the people from a stage to another stage. Any program that's revolutionary is an advancing program. See, revolution is change. Honey, if you keep on changing before you know it, in fact, not even knowing what socialism is, you don't have to know what it is. They're endorsing it. They're participating in it. They're supporting socialism. And a lot of people will tell you, well, the people don't have any theory. They need some theory. They need some theory even if they don't have any practice. And the Black Panther Party tells you that if a man tells you he's the type of man who has you buying candy bars and eating the wrapper and throwing the candy away, he'd have you walking east when you're supposed to be walking west. It's true. If you listen to what the pigs say, you'll be walking outside when the sun is shining with your umbrella over your head. And when it's raining, you're going to be outside leaving the umbrella inside. That's right. You got to get it together. I'm saying what they have you doing. Now, what do we do? We say that the Breakfast for Children program is a socialistic program. It teaches people basically that by practice, we thought up and let them practice that theory and expect that theory. What's more important, you learn something just like everybody else. Let me, let me try to break it down to you. You say this brother here goes to a school eight years to be an auto mechanic. And that teacher used to be an auto mechanic. He tells him, well, nigga, you got to get what we call on-the-job training. And he says, damn, with all this theory I got, I got to go to on-the-job training? What for? And he say, on-the-job training, he works with me. I've been here for 20 years. When I started work, they didn't even have auto mechanics. I ain't got no theory, just a whole bunch of practice. And what happened? A car came in making a whole, whole lot of funny noises. And the brother here, go get his book. He on page one. He ain't got to page 200. And I'm sitting here listening to the car. He says, what do you think it is? I say, I think it's the carburetor. He say, no, I don't see anywhere in here where it says a carburetor make noise like that. And he says, how you know it's the carburetor? And I said, well, nigga, with all them degrees, as many as a thermometer, around 20 years ago, 19 to be exact, I was listening to the same kind of noise. And what I did was I took apart the voltage regulator, and it wasn't that. Then I took apart the alternator, and it wasn't that. I took apart the generator brushes. It wasn't that. I took apart the generator, and it wasn't even that. After I took apart all of that, I finally got to the carburetor. And when I got to the carburetor, I found that that's what it was. And I told myself, fool, the next time you hear this sound, you better take apart the carburetor first. How did he learn? He learned through practice. I don't care how much theory you got. If you ain't got any practice applied to it, then that theory happens to be irrelevant. Right? Any theory you get, practice it. When you practice it, you make some mistakes. 
And when you make a mistake, you correct that theory. And then it will be corrected theory that will be able to be applied and used in any situation. That's what we've got to be able to do. Every time I speak in the church, I always try to say something, you know, about Martin Luther King. I have a lot of respect for Martin Luther King. I think he was one of the greatest orators the country ever produced. And I listen to anyone who speaks well because I like to listen to that. Martin Luther King said, it might look dark sometimes. And it might look dark over here on the north side. Maybe you thought the room you was going to was going to be packed with people. Maybe you thought you might have to turn some people away and you might not have enough people here. Maybe some people you think should be here are not here and you think that, well, if they're not here, then it won't be as good as we thought it could have been. And maybe you thought you need more people here than you have. Maybe you think that the pigs are going to be able to pressure you and put pressure to squash your movement even before it starts. But Martin Luther King said that he heard that somewhere that only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. And we're not worried about it being dark. He said that the arm of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards heaven. We got Huey P. Newton in jail and Eldridge Cleaver underground and Al Prince's Bunchy Carter has been murdered. Bobby Hutton and John Huggins been murdered. And a lot of people think that the Black Panther Party, in a sense, is giving up. But let us say this that we've made the kind of commitment to the people that hardly anyone else has made. We decided that although some of us come from what some of you might call petty bourgeoisie families, though some of us could, in a sense, be on what you call the mountaintop, we could be integrated into the society, working with people that we never had a chance to work with. Maybe we could be on the mountaintop, and maybe we wouldn't have to be hiding when we go to speak in places like this. Maybe we wouldn't have to worry about court cases and going to jail and being sick. We say that even though all those luxuries exist on the mountaintop, we understand that you people and your problems are right here in the valley. We in the Black Panther Party, because of our dedication and understanding, went into the valley knowing that the people are in the valley knowing that our plight is the same plight as the people in the valley, knowing that our enemies are on the mountain, to our friends are in the valley. And even though it's nice to be on the mountaintop, we're going back to the valley because we understand that there's work to be done in the valley. And when we get through with this work in the valley, then we're going to go to the mountaintop. We're going to the mountaintop because there's a motherfucker on the mountaintop that's playing king. And he's been bullshitting us. And we've got to get to the mountaintop, not for the purpose of living his lifestyle and living like he lives. We got to get to the mountaintop to make the motherfucker understand, God damn it, that we coming from the valley. You've been listening to episode four of A People's Anthology, featuring Fred Hampton's speech, Power Anywhere There's People. The text was read by Malcolm London, a poet, activist, and educator from Chicago. It was introduced by Asad Haider, founding editor of Viewpoint magazine and author of Mistaken Identity, Anti-Racism and the Struggle Against White Supremacy. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson. The People's Anthology is a production from Boston Review. 
a political and literary magazine, both online and in print, since 1975. Visit us at bostonreview.net.